Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host Mike, and this is a double episode because we will be discussing the 1976 classic Taxi Driver for our main show and also give you cheapskates a... <laughs> <laughs> Always good. Always good to attack the <laughs> devoted listeners. <laughs> a peek into what's happening on our Patreon-exclusive uh, content. Uh, we are running through Quentin Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, where he takes us uh, through films of the 70s, and Taxi Driver happens to be one of those chapters, and so we're going to take a look at the film and also what Quentin Tarantino has to say about this classic. And I was worried going into it. I was like, oh, God, is he just going to tear Taxi Driver a new butthole and uh, he doesn't, although he does have some scathing things to say about it, especially Bernard Herrmann's score, where he kind of calls it uh, as something that he just threw together and <laughs> pawned <laughs> off to Martin Scorsese. That uh, QT makes a lot of uh, speculations, and uh, most of them are uh, fairly insulting. <laughs> usually, usually when he's got something on the record, it's positive, and then if there's something he dislikes, uh, there's an uh, assumption made. I thought you were going to uh, mention the fact, because I think you and QT share distaste for the Wild Bunch, or maybe seeing it as overrated. Am I a little bit. off on that one? I know that he he likes to take shots <laughs> at the Wild Bunch a lot, and you get a little bit more of that in this chapter. Uh, so if you're a fan, uh, or I guess like an anti-fan of the Wild Bunch, then you will enjoy that as well. I think this is a good choice, uh, Webb, because this is, of all of his selections, it's not the... They haven't had some popular uh, picks, but this one stands out above the rest. This is a like dorm room uh, poster uh, material, even decades later. Uh, for you know, unfortunately, <laughs> for the, the disaffected youth um, who probably have never, well, certainly have never set foot in 1970s taxi driver in New York. Uh, I have, and I can say that it looks really expensive, and like I've been on. Uh, Harvey Cattell, the pimp's doorstep, uh, visiting uh, my wife's family or sister who has lived, been New Yorker, New Yorker for decades. And I'm pretty sure like their ring security camera probably said, hey, there's a poor person standing on your stoop. You need to get them, get them <laughs> off. So, so what I'm saying is if you're coming to Taxi Driver now, 
this doesn't this version of New York does not exist, but it existed in cinema for a long time, thanks in part probably to Martin Scorsese's work uh, on Taxi Driver, sort of defining the city for for that decade. I think the people who come to Taxi Driver and they watch it and they see it just as that uh, vigilante film that Tarantino says, you know, the second half really, and they're ignoring the fact that Travis Bickle is clearly a fucking lunatic. It, it worries me. It worries and me. And a dork. A dork. <laughs> like, yes. Like, the... this is very much like when we did uh, American Psycho. Uh, I think uh, for that episode, we we are our Batman month, which was wildly successful because we like to appeal to the comic book dorks who also, you know, are movie addicts like us. Um, and I remember in watching that and one of the either extra features or the commentary uh, that I believe Mary Harmon said that. Uh, Christian Bale got the role because he's the only one that saw Patrick Bateman as a nerd. Everyone else <laughs> saw him as like troubled and tortured and like dark and cool. And he saw him as a big old fucking dork. And I, you know, in this chapter of Simon Speculation, there's a whole sequence where Tarantino caught up with this film about a year later, I think, when he said he was like able to like get into this R rated movie. And the audience he watched it with, Thought it was like a, a a comedy of errors of watch the, watch this goofball just like pratfall, <laughs> like until a certain point where it got serious. Um, very reminiscent of um, Paul Thomas Anderson's, uh, I guess, fears with the William H Macy character in Boogie Nights. If you ever listened to that, like awesome commentary track back when commentary tracks were like fantastic, especially his. It's not until the New Year New Year's Eve segment when it you know the title card eighties comes up that people stopped laughing at the William H. Macy character because it it took someone's brains being blown out before they're like, oh, shit, maybe we should feel bad for being a bully. And there's a little bit of that with Taxi Driver, but then I think what you're going to talk about as far as the dorm room style thing, probably the more troubling aspects is the fact that in the film, and I think probably with a lot of young viewers, Travis Pickle becomes uh, an anti-hero like icon as if he's like fucking Wolverine or, <laughs> or something. Actually in the uh, Scorsese commentary, well, Scorsese and Schrader, they did a commentary for Criterion. Are they together or do they, do they drop in and out? Is it, it's two separate. Okay. Separate. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, this specific commentary actually has not a narrator, but somebody who sets up uh, what's going to be discussed uh, every now and then throughout, which I was, I, I thought that was actually a really nice touch. I think, uh, uh, oh, some well. commentaries to make them a little tighter uh, would be would be helpful. You missed your we, calling. We don't need you could have done that job. You could have <laughs> been the the link between Schrader and Scorsese, and you could have berated him on the taxi driver commentary track for like, so what's the shit you're saying about Shutter Island? Can you elaborate on? That? <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of me in the booth <laughs> going up to Ridley Scott and be like, "Listen, we don't care about your art. <laughs> Can we please stick to the." topic at hand 80s the new 60 baby <laughs> i'm virile <laughs> right <laughs> um he discusses the fact that travis bickle is constantly living in a fantasy world and he's doing his damnedest to truly live out these fantasies in his real life and then the vigilante aspect he even references batman he's like he kind of sees himself as something like that which is completely ludicrous and yes, you know, at, by the end of the movie, the media has dubbed Travis Bickle as some kind of a hero. And I hate the idea of somebody who isn't pausing to look at how 
crazy everything is in this film see him as a hero, much less as an anti-hero. Beyond that, the media says, yes, this person saved this little girl from these pimps and these hoodlums. And so it is... It's troubling. Schrader even says uh, at the end uh, of the film that this person is ready to go postal once again. Scorsese calls the character like a ticking time bomb because he's just going to go through all this over again. Um, and I, I do I, you, you reference the audience that Tarantino saw the film uh, with. I like that. I like the idea of the audience is, you know, he's buying the record and somebody in the audience might shout, she's already got it, mate. Don't worry about it. You know, like a, I don't know why I made a British, but <laughs> I like that. I do. Um, and absolutely, the film does take that left turn once uh, Jodie Foster's character uh, is introduced. Um, one thing I've got to, uh, the subtle concepts in this film, like the, the, the abused are always kicked downward, I think might be lost on the average viewer who is just going in to see, you know, uh, another death wish. Um, the, the, the line that really sticks out to me is something that Schrader said, and, and Tarantino uh, wrote this down, is Travis's racism stems from the fact that the frustrated and powerless poor tend to take out their resentment not on the powerful class above them but the even more powerless class below them and that is striking and that is where uh, a lot of the racism that people might miss resides in this film when you first watched it or even now do you see that racism that uh, Travis Bickle uh, clearly has but he doesn't i don't know if he realizes he has it no certainly when i watched it the first time now <laughs> my first viewing uh i believe i was the same age as the jody foster character i think i was 12 <laughs> and my dad's like well son it's time for you to watch taxi driver i don't know why <laughs> <laughs> so when uh, qt is talking about um he he states later he doesn't believe uh, you know, take it either way, either the narrative of the film or just the unreliable narrator that is Travis Bickle, that he is a veteran, that he, he served uh, in Vietnam because he talks about how his racism is the sort of othering, this fear of uh, people that he's had no personal experience with. That probably would have been me, not, not saying that I was like a raving 12-year-old racist, but from a small town in Kentucky – 1970s in New York, uh, everything is an other. Uh, <laughs> there are no taxis yeah. where I come from. Like, you know, there's, I think, two stoplights in my town. So, like, this world might as well be fucking Mars when I when I first watched it. <laughs> and <laughs> I actually think that may be healthier than people who watch it and think this still represents, like, the big city. Um, because, as I said earlier, like, sort of 1970s New York, it's like iconic in entertainment and it's you know you mentioned batman even like gotham being like sort of big bad new york city that needs batman like lurking in the shadows because otherwise you can't go out and you know past past 6 p.m or something i like the the sort of viewpoint of the travis bickle character in that regard because um certainly as like a, a young man or you know if you're watching it as a teenager and you're just experienced in the world um it plays on those fears of like, I've never come across this. 
that's not even getting to the fact that the 12 year old, which I was of the same age, I was of <laughs> the peer group of Jodie Foster, who is playing a prostitute in this. <laughs> um, that is something that he touches on later that is a very point. There's a very point of reason. Uh, which is actually pretty cynical. Uh, he, he mentions that the, the film would change if you made this like a 19 or 20-year-old prostitute, not that what's happening to this person is is not taking advantage of her uh, and doing like, you know, ungodly amounts of trauma. But the fact that they make it a 12-year-old, it's meant to play to anyone. Like, there there is no justification for what's being done to her. But what it does justify is the violence that Travis Bickle will enact on these people later, which is where the film is both very entertaining and also, I guess, very dangerous as well, because you've presented easy targets such as Harvey Keitel, whose stoop is worth, I don't know, $30 million now, and I stood on. (laughs) But (laughs) let's get into the Harvey Keitel thing, because in this chapter, Tarantino posits a version of this where he is not the pimp. And that does, like, even when I first read the sentence before he gets into it, I'm like, well, that doesn't work. You can't go back now. It's, it's, it's Harvey Keitel. It's iconic. You can't do that. But it's sort of an interesting thought experiment that he has where he talks about uh, the subtext becoming text in the film. So what, what do you think about that as far as maybe race coming to the forefront of the, the narrative in Taxi Driver, if, if they had gone that direction? This is mentioned in the commentary, but very briefly and glossed over. And Scorsese does say that, yeah, originally the person was the character. Uh, Sport that was African-American, and it was changed uh, due to, like, the studio, essentially. Like, you can't have a film in which the character uh, just blows away a bunch of, you know, black characters at the end and then is labeled as a hero. And... One of the things that Tarantino does pose, is Taxi Driver a movie about a racist or a racist movie? And I think in its current form, with Harvey Keitel, I think it's a movie about a racist. But if you do change that ending and you have Harvey Keitel's character be black and all the other characters change to black as well, I think you have a very problematic film. Now, a film can be racist even if it's not intended to be one, and it can certainly be seen as something that is racist. And and Tarantino argues otherwise. But here's the catch-22. You have to deal with those same mouth-breathers who are putting Bickle on this pedestal, and they've got the poster on the wall and all that. And, And so they don't see any of the racial subtext in the film at all. As soon as you cross that line and you have that this very violent... And, and, you know, from a cinema standpoint, very kind of cathartic, a violently cathartic and, and unfortunately satisfying sequence at the end where you you are complete. And again, hey, you were with Bickle pretty much the entire movie. Schrader wanted the entire perspective to be from Bickle's standpoint because he's like, as soon as you have sequences where you're not with him, all of a sudden you realize how fucking crazy and ludicrous <clears throat> this guy's worldview is. And he didn't want that. He wanted that perspective. Which only happens once in the film, right? There's only one cutaway to Jodie Foster and Harvey Cattell having a, I don't want to say intimate moment, although I think, you know, eventually it will go that way. But it is, um, it is definitely like a grooming sequence where he's sort of reaffirming that he's the caretaker for her uh, that we drop into, which... 
I've never really liked because of what you point out. I enjoy the fact that it is just solely from Bickle's perspective. I've, I've never really liked that sequence. I love Harvey Keitel in this role, and I love Jodie Foster in her role. I don't know if I like seeing anything outside of Bickle's perspective because it almost feels like a cheat, like it affirms his beliefs. Like, okay, this is actually happening outside the scope of what his perception is. He's justified in going to do the things he's going to do, which – as you point out at the top of this conversation, like you think about the, the problems we have with gun violence in this country and, you know, not to get too morbid, but like I'm not advocating for anyone to suffer at the hands of a mass shooting. But it is. It is just random people going about their everyday lives, going to the movie theater, a bowling alley or, you know, fucking children going to school. It's rarely ever someone who is uh, abusing young women yeah you don't you don't hear about that it's like so for you know i i do agree with tarantino that you know cinema does not inspire violence because no one is racist john wayne from the searchers who's enacting violence to save a young girl and no one is racist travis bickle who's saving 12 year old jody foster they're just shooting regular people uh and you know this is not a mental health podcast but like there's a clear distinction there between the you know, the movie version obviously with the narrative you have to have some reason to go along with the characters and so as skewed as it is if travis bickle just ended up shooting people in a crowd or people in a diner th there's there's no story there there's no like they, they have to give reason but then I, I agree with the filmmakers here the dangerous aspect is if it's not Jodie Foster who gets in his car that night and he doesn't witness a man putting hands on a child, it, it could have been the guy that sold him the fucking record at the store. Who knows what would have you know eventually set him off? The reality is that the concept of the good guy with a gun has been it, – it's been formed, I think, on the screen and kind of taken to twist actual real laws, real legislation – or, or, or the lack of. But here is how they were able to squeeze that scene, that particular scene with him grooming Jodie Foster's character in is because you kind of cross-cut or intercut scenes with Travis Bickle outside kind of looking up at the uh, room. And that's how uh, uh, Schrader kind of allowed it. Because Scorsese actually had another sequence uh, with uh, the Albert Brooks character talking to, I believe, the candidate. And that was and, – and Schrader said no. <laughs> and Scorsese kind of gets away with it. Uh, and, and he mentions that, yes, no, we got Schrader's permission to have this scene because you still have that scene. But again, the film plays it fast and loose with like, is this really happening? Mm -hmm. Did that whole epilogue really happen? And this could also be seen as something from Travis's mind. Like he is kind of projecting what he believes is happening. So that's how they were able to get away with it. You're absolutely right. This is probably the only scene in which Robert De Niro is not on the screen and you're not seeing the scene from his perspective to the point where even the scenes where he's the uh, in with dialogue heavy scenes with other people he's kind of separated from like there's a physical uh, distance to the point where you're showing his uh, character's isolation you absolutely change the film i think completely and, and you're right that subtext does become text and all of a sudden you don't have a film that is a hit i think you have a film that uh, other people 
uh, specifically people of color, will look at and be troubled by it. Even though Scorsese and, and Schrader are not intentionally trying to make it a, a racist film, or, or I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're trying to make a controversial one, because I think all art that has anything to say will ruffle feathers. But I think in its current state, it is able to exist as a film about a racist. What about you? Do you think changing the race of those characters at the end, does it alter your perception of the movie and your, your feelings about it? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think I'm pretty, I think it would alter its, uh, maybe the level of enjoyment uh, you would get at the cathartic violence uh, at the end. Um, mm -hmm. Because you would, but even then, I, I was about to say because you would doubt his motives. But even now, I doubt his sure. motives. Even without the sort of racial element of him possibly doing it because, uh, you know, he's a character that fears um, the other. He fears uh, black men in particular, which is, is still in the film. I mean, many times where he is suspicious of <laughs> just black characters walking down the street. Um, that's, that is something that catches his eye. Um, I, I don't think it would because I, I'm, I, I don't know who, I mean, that would be scary, especially, I hopefully none of our listeners, I don't know who aspires to be Travis Bickle. Uh, I also don't really know who aspires yeah. to be Tyler Durden. Like I, you would aspire to have Brad Pitt's abs, <laughs> why would you want to have, why would you want to hang out with a bunch <laughs> of space monkeys? Why would you want to hang out with all these dorks, um, who are doing these dorky things in servitude? To, to you I don't, I don't know I, I it's probably dangerous to ask that question because of the uh, the, the world we live in of influencers <laughs> where you people just sit in chat boxes and watch people play video games like I have no idea like the level of fandom I guess is there's a break for me where uh, I feel like other than you and I having these conversations like my fandom or my affinity uh, for you know the sort of lone creative type and i'm losing that using that loosely here as far as the travis pickle some sort of lone creative type that he's got something that he needs to get out in the world um it probably just sits with me like i, I i'm not really accustomed to falling in with it. in fact i don't know about you but it makes me kind of uncomfortable when i find out that i'm kind of shifting into that group of people who could become like space monkeys and i, I say that only just as like fans of like movies where i'm like Oh, like I'm, I'd be part, like, if, let's say I didn't like Last Jedi, <laughs> which I love. And I had, you know, my reasons, whatever. And plenty of people have valid reasons for not enjoying that movie. <laughs> it would trouble me that I would be a part of the anti-Last Jedi <laughs> phantom so much so that I would have to question my own <laughs> feelings. Like, no, wait a minute. I don't want to be a part of that club. <laughs> like, am I sure that I really had a distaste for this movie? So I don't really understand, um, the attraction to these characters. Cause yeah, you're right. They're not, it's not Wolverine. It's not just a, a tough guy who has snappy comebacks and, you know, doesn't like Cyclops, but ultimately will do the right thing. Um, this is someone that's looking to do the wrong thing and just needs a reason to do it. And I'm, I don't, yeah, yeah I'm not, not as, as into that. Um, I do think this one stands up better than like your Scarface, for example, which, I think it's probably, you know, De Palma catches a lot of strays in this book. And the, actually the following chapter, which I don't really know if we'll have time to get into, is like, what if De Palma had dragged a taxi driver? <laughs> but I think Scarface, I don't think it'll ever be featured on the podcast because I'm not really a fan and I don't know what conversation we would get out of it. But that one clearly, 
Like, I think you were meant to aspire to be a drug lord and to get to fuck Michelle Pfeiffer and go out in a blaze of glory. And one thing I've always admired about Taxi Driver is that he doesn't get to go out in a blaze of glory. He will be like the sort of Harvey Dent line. Well, he will live long enough to become like, oh, he's actually like a deranged nut job. Like that guy we thought was a hero. That's like the through line as far as like if you follow this out, follow this equation out, Travis Bickle will not live long enough to remain uh, a hero. He's going to do something stupid and he's going to be villainized eventually. Uh, We just don't see it. But perhaps a lot of fans of this film, especially younger fans also, you know, they don't as well. I don't know. Do you think this one still sits with like – Fight Club and Scarface and, you know, we'll go to another Scorsese, Scorsese film, Goodfellas. Do you think it still sits up there on the dorm room sort of Hall of Fame or is it has it dropped off finally? I think it does with a very specific kind of film crowd. I think the people who are running through the <laughs> – I'm going to equate my journey of film into like the, the average cinephile, I would say. Is you start with IMDb, right? You start with IMDb and you see their top uh, 250, and then you work your way through it. And this was actually quite high uh, when when I was when I first watched it. I don't know where it is now, but I want to say it was in like the top 25. I think you start there and you look at the film at you, you kind of take it at, at face value, right? And so you can kind of admire, I guess, Travis as your knee jerk reaction. But I'd like to think that you think about it for a minute about what it really is happening. Are you telling me that there's a reality in which the Sybil Shepherd's character walks, you know, over to him and enters his cab and all of a sudden she's like, you know what? I don't think I had that album. And now that I'm thinking about it, hey, it's just a porno. You know, she's not all of a sudden going to reevaluate the character because of what's happened. If anything, he's like, this guy is clearly violent. Maybe I am too conservative in my principles. Maybe I should get, maybe I should be more hip. I should have stuck around for the second fuck sequence in that on that porno theater. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think it's still up there. And I mean, hey, I'm one of those people. When I first watched Scarface, I was very much like, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You know, and then you your your, your tastes mature. You begin to I seek out other films. I wonder why I always had distaste for it. Because I saw it on VHS as a teenager, and I just could not uh-huh. – I don't I don't know. Like, I, I could not get in that one. I'm, and I'm no better than anyone else. I was all in on Taxi Driver. I was all in on Fight Club as a teenager when I first saw it. And I actually – you know, I mean, I still am. I think Fight – I think I have more problems with <laughs> justifying my affinity for Fight Club now than I do Taxi Driver. I don't know. I don't, and I don't know if that's like time. Like a text driver is to me seen as more serious, whereas Fight Club came out when I was a teenager. And I sort of reflect back on, oh, wow. Like I maybe I got into I got into the aesthetics of it more than I care to admit now that it just it, it was just a cool movie. And I don't know how much I have to like apologize for that, like as far as just enjoying a cool movie. But I certainly don't know if David Fincher I, I saw something recently in the uh, run up to the, the killer, which you've seen and I have not. Um, that he's like, I'm not responsible for the morons who don't get Fight Club. Which I was like, he just like cut off that question. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not responsible for stupid people. I'm not part of the education system of this country. Like, I make movies. I was like, all right, fair enough, fair enough, Fincher. Uh, here's what I'll say, and it might be controversial, but when I first watched Scarface, I was knee deep into all of the East Coast like gangster rap albums and rap artists. And I was very much in love with that music and with not so much with that lifestyle because, shit, I don't know what they're actually going through in their upbringing. But it was 
a very attractive uh, narrative. And so when the rap community kind of takes the movie Scarface and makes it kind of their own, like I was all in. And I think that's one of the reasons that I really like uh, Scarface as well. And of course, gangster films are always very uh, um, exciting. They, they just generally are. Uh, you know, uh, obviously, Godfather, Goodfellas, you, and, and you put Scarface right in there with some of the... I, I look at Scarface now as like a... Not a guilty pleasure, but I can look at it as like, okay, this is trash, but this is enjoyable trash. Which may have been um, what I mean, it now, was at this point in my life. At the beginning. It may have been just yeah. put out as a populist gangster movie. It's just meant to be entertaining. I, I don't yes. know. I'm not going to speculate like some people would, but <laughs> maybe that's what De Palma was thinking. I mean, at this point in my life, I'm more like... Let's watch the Howard Hawks' Scarface. Let's not, you know, like, and I think, and this this is maybe a little hubris on my part, but that's where the journey of a cinephile should end up. <laughs> you should move past Brian De Palma's Scarface and go to Howard Hawks. <laughs> that's where it should be. Webb is uh, informing the kids how they're going to spend their golden years, which is watching Howard Hawks movies. We, you know, we can hope. You know, you talk about IMDb Top 50, and there's some stupid stuff. Um, the Godfather itself is number two. Godfather part two is number four. Uh, shockingly. And I assume this is just because you're an avid user of that site and you've stuffed the ballots. 12 angry men, not the free conversion, which I prefer, but 1957 is number five on this list all time. 12 angry men, 1957. Uh, I'm shocked. Now, granted you get, uh, (laughs) seven through 13 includes the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy. All three entries get in at 7 to 13. <laughs> and Fight Club is number 12. Goodfellas is number 17. Um, so, wow. yeah, I mean, ooh, The Green Mile, 28. What the fuck? Life is Beautiful, 27. May, you know, that doesn't strike me as young. May, may, were there a lot of, like, Academy Award voters that are also on IMDb? Because like, that just does not track with Fight Club. <laughs> Life is Beautiful, 27. Okay. All right. I do wonder. I, I think we also see a lot of lists that are like, all right, well, let's uh, let's focus on films from the 20th century, right? Like they, they, they'll find ways to put some of the other films uh, um, or give them more exposure um, versus some of uh, the stuff that's still on IMDb. I, I, I was wondering. I know they, they put up their algorithm or their equation somewhere on the website. They, they, may, they may have taken it down, but I'd like to know uh, some of what uh, – I, I want to know how the sausage is made. I do uh, would like to see uh, where the the ratings are. I I still enjoy Taxi Driver, not in the same way that I did when I first watched it, but I have an appreciation for a lot of the filmmaking rather than the actual uh, narrative. Uh, all you have to do is listen to the commentary uh, that Scorsese did with uh, with Criterion, and he talks about all of the influences. Like, he's just a giant nerd as well. He is a huge movie nerd and he's talking about all of the different uh, uh, films that he's referencing all the different uh, actors and directors that he's like oh you know what they influenced my decision in doing this and this is just a reference to something i saw here that's the kind of stuff i love it's um i don't want to call it a pastiche that's not what this is uh it, it really is scorsese's love a film just you're just seeing it through his eyes in this specific film and hey again schrader you're coming into a paul schrader film i think this is a great way i ever since he started directing i don't know if i love 
his his work as a director because there's very little influence. I think I like his worldview seen through the eyes of a Scorsese or another or a De Palma or something. I I think uh, I like his work through that prism. Um, do you do you still put Taxi Driver uh, maybe as high as you once did or or not? I mean, I did until Shutter Island came out. <laughs> Fair. Then, then it dropped down for ob- obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's I I'm not as high on I guess you know current you know cinephiles. Uh, we used to call them film Twitter. I don't really know what you would call them anymore. Uh, that's a you know fractured community. But uh, Paul Schrader, I think you know uh, politically does not sit well with the, the youngins. Uh, but they sure do seem to mm-hmm. love, and especially with First Reformed, have like rediscovered uh, his work. Um, I'm not as high on it, like individually, as far as his, uh, you know, directing stuff. Like I like First Reformed, but I did not, uh, you know, I did not put it above Twelve Angry Men, even the the lesser 1957 version. I did immediately bump it on uh, the top 250. Uh, it's the perfect semblance of you know uh, a screenwriter at the top of his game and. I wouldn't say this is Scorsese at the top of his game because, good lord, like his – I mean it's just decades of just like yeah. great, great works of art. Um, but it's the perfect pairing of those two two minds. So it does sit well with me. I, I don't have a problem with the fucking score, QT. I, I mean every time I watch it, I wouldn't say it feels like the first time, but I'm like consistently amazed and impressed that this thing exists. Like that's that's the thing where I, I step back. I'm like, oh my god! Like all of these elements came together. Even Harvey Keitel, as much as QT likes to imagine and wish him away, all of the the elements here. Sybil Shepherd, who I, I, I dumped on uh, with our our last book club episode for Daisy Miller. Everything here. Albert Brooks, who we didn't even touch on. I mean, just so many things oh, I love about wonderful. this film. <laughs> my kid just walked in. <laughs> Hi. Uh, we're going to a, uh, it's a religious thing, and so she's, uh, dressed up in, oh, like, her, uh, like, Indian garb. Hey, I just thought it was the mentioning of, uh, Albert Brooks that summed her in. She's like, Albert Brooks discussion, <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, she can't hear you because, hold on, let me see if I can. Um, hello. Hello. <laughs> That's Uncle Mike. Can you say hi, Uncle Mike? Hi. Hello. <laughs> Can you believe she's like a real person? Hmm. When 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 I think of like a baby, you know, you think you think of this thing that you got to take care of. And while I'm still taking care of her, it's just she's uh she's like a real person with with feelings and and opinions. It's not like it, uh, wild right everybody now. loves Raymond, where they have the kids. Uh, they they bring them out every once in a while, and then they you know episodes go by without any mention of them. That's right. Are you ready to go? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, go to Mama, and uh, I'll be done in a few minutes, okay? Okay. Okay, go. Can you say bye? Bye. Bye. <laughs> Does she think that's weird? Does she think, like, what is my dad doing just talking to a random floating head on his monitor? Like, <laughs> No, no, not at all. Not at all, because uh, we use FaceTime and, and all those other uh, really wonderful technological advances to talk to people in India and stuff, so... It's just a normal part of her life. It really is. Um, we'll uh, let's wrap up with with one. Oh, she's sweet. She closed the door for me. Oh, nice. Uh, we'll we'll wrap up with this. 
as much as I still appreciate Taxi Driver, I know that at the end of my life, I'll probably watch The Holdovers more times <laughs> than I will the Taxi Driver. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it. So, that is another preview. That is a next month's trilogy. That's going to be our Christmas spectacular, uh, which Webb, being the big you know, city boy that he is, that's, you know, he's basically living permanent taxi driver, I assume, in the, in the big city, uh, <laughs> had access to the holdovers and the killer. And yet I'm waiting not so patiently for both to, to come my way. Go out and see it. And I hope that the film stays for the Christmas season. It's it's perfect. We've got another Christmas classic on our hands, ladies and gentlemen, and, and hopefully we'll get to nerd about it uh, soon um, in, in, in maybe just a week. So, yeah. <laughs> I told my wife that you were watching The Holdovers because uh, uh, I saw a text of yours pop up. And uh, she said, what's he watching? Because she couldn't really make out, but she saw the sort of fleeting image of like the ticket stub. I said, the, the holdovers. And she's like, which one is that? I'm like, yeah, it's uh, Paul Giamatti. And she goes, oh, it's Webb. It's his alter ego on screen. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> believe me, like the, the whole concept of him as my avatar, there is just more evidence being piled on. I told my wife, I was like, if, if I never met you, <laughs> you're seeing into a multiverse, baby. 